Welcome to the ASCA Viewpoints Podcast, the podcast where we talk about the student conduct profession in higher education. I'm Jill Creighton, your Viewpoints host. Today's episode features Adon Tejada. Adon has been the Chief and Director of Public Safety at St. Mary's College of California since July of 2012. St. Mary's College, or SMC, is a four-year private Catholic Christian Brothers College with a student population of about 4,000, with 1,100 on-campus residents in Moraga, California, which is just about 20 miles east of San Francisco. Prior to SMC, Tejada served with the University of California Police Department at Berkeley, and he was there for over 28 years and retired as a lieutenant. While he was at Berkeley, Tejada worked patrol, specialized foot patrol, bike patrol, drug task force, investigations, administration, crime prevention, parking administration, and community outreach. He was the tactical team leader for 15 years and served on the special response unit. In addition to serving as the Mountain Pacific Region Director for the IACLEA Board of Directors, Tejada is a member of the FBI National Academy Associates in the California College and University Police Chiefs Association, the National Tactical Officers Association, the Association for Student Conduct Administration, that's us, and serves on the advisory board for the National Behavior Intervention Team Association, or NABITA. Tejada has a bachelor's degree in Chicano Studies from UC Berkeley and attended the 228th session of the FBI National Academy. He taught a three-unit course at UC Berkeley for 16 years, focused on the criminal justice impacts of the Fourth, Fifth, and Sixth Amendments, and is an assistant adjunct professor at SMC. He presented on multidisciplinary behavior intervention at the Indianapolis IACLEA Conference and on protest management at the 2015 Gehring Academy for ASCA and the 2016 NABITA Conference. He has co-conducted webinars on campus protest response and has been published in Student Affairs Today and the NABITA Tip of the Week. Welcome to the podcast, Adon Tejada. Adon serves as the Chief and Director of Public Safety for St. Mary's College in Moraga, California, and he's also a member of the IACLEA Board of Directors as the Mountain Pacific Region Director, and IACLEA is the International Association of Campus Law Enforcement Agents, or agencies. Welcome, Adon. Thank you very much. Can you correct me on the IACLEA acronym? Yeah, it's the International Association of Campus Law Enforcement. Uh, oh, see there, I messed it up too. The International Association of Campus Law Enforcement Administrators. Yeah, Administrators. Administrators. Okay, my apologies. Yeah, yeah. I'm also on the advisory board for uh, the National Behavior Intervention Team Association. Excellent. Um, we've also had you at our conference in the past. I know that you've co-presented with Laura Bennett, one of our past presidents. Right. Yeah, I presented at the uh, at the institute and also at the conference. Yeah. Excellent. Well, I'm really thrilled to talk to you today, Don, about the partnership and intersection of student conduct and campus law enforcement. I know that for many of us, our campus law enforcement partners are some of our strongest partnerships and ones that we absolutely need in order to do our jobs well. But before we dig uh-huh. into all of that, I was hoping you could just tell me how did you get to your present seat? What's your journey into the profession? Yeah, so I started as a student at UC Berkeley way back before there was color television. And um, I got really interested. I had always been interested in law enforcement and decided, well, why not 
um, try and work to protect a community that I really care about. So I started as a police officer at UC Berkeley, and I was there for 29 years, ended up uh, retiring from there as a lieutenant, and I got involved in just about every different aspect of the department and did a lot of things uh, like I was one of the lead instructors or lead presenters for student orientation and did a lot of coordination for system-wide clery response and then got a great opportunity to become the, the chief and director of public safety here at St. Mary's College of California. Been here for five years and uh, it's a very, very different setting. Uh, small private institution as, as opposed to a very large public urban institution. And so it's been a great a great path to kind of go and see the different the different aspects of, of the profession. What's on the, the minds of your colleagues and you in terms of the trends in the profession right now? Uh, I think that, well, it depends on what part of the country they're from. I mean, I think campus carry is something that a lot of agencies are looking at. Of course, every agency is uh, thinking about emergency response to things like natural disasters and active threats. We're seeing nationwide transitions from shootings to stabbings and and cars running through crowds and those kinds of things. So it's kind of ever expanding the view of what are the things that we need to be preparing for. And so I think those are some of the some of the big things that are on on people's minds right now. IACLIA does a really nice job of doing kind of an emerging issues uh, series of trainings uh, as they go through the year. They kind of look at what's coming up and how can we get some information out quickly. And so that's one of the things our association is really focused on. I think one of the hottest topics in higher education right now is iteratively iteratively come back, uh, which is working with students when they choose to protest in the best way that institutions can respond. Um, So you mentioned that you've been in the field for about 30, 35 years. How have you seen campus law enforcement responses change over time? Yeah, no, that's a great subject as well. That's one of the ones that I uh, presented on at the, at the Institute with Laura. And I think, um, the the changes have have just kind of gone with the way that society has changed over the years and the things that we're seeing as uh, you know ways to to deal with with crowds um, we learn as we go and or try to learn as we go and what it's interesting to watch uh, campus law enforcement agencies deal with these things and many times in a much more efficient and more nuanced way than sometimes our municipal counterparts and we see even the the municipal counterparts kind of looking to how campuses deal with things in order to kind of take some cues from that. I think we saw that uh, with Occupy, and we saw that with some of the other large-scale protesting that happened across the country. So, yeah, that's a, that's a continuing issue that we look at. Uh, what it boils down to mostly is do you have the resources, do you have the, the person power and the, and the money to deal with some of the crowds and some of the issues that are being brought to campuses? And I think as we we look at protests around the country like Occupy, ones that have kind of merged from general society or on and then moved on to campus or vice versa, uh, you know, one of the things I hear a lot from students is, oh, the police agencies in the general community just don't have the same level of care that campus law enforcement professionals might have or campus safety professionals. So can you talk a little bit about the general philosophy that you live by when you're thinking about campus public safety? Well, I think that, um, that, that thought or that opinion can vary greatly on uh, community by community. And, sure. and I think that 
some of that comes from the fact that we are working in a smaller community, working in a community of people that we know and deal with all the time. Um, and so I, I think that, I also think that being in higher ed, and I'm, I'm biased because I'm a higher ed law enforcement guy, but I, I feel like uh, we just tend to be more nuanced. We tend to be more uh, open to and more likely to look at what are the the subtle changes that are happening within the community and within the attitudes that uh, regarding these issues. And so uh, I think that allows us to respond better. And I think that uh, with the, all the political protests and things that have been going on, um, I don't think it's any surprise that some of these groups are coming to campuses because it, that's where they think they're going to get the, the largest kind of reaction. Uh, but it, it really sets up a challenge for, for my colleagues across the country to make sure that they, they handle it in the best way possible. And what do those nuances really sound like or feel like when you're working with your community directly? I'm sorry, can you repeat that question? Sure. So you said that, you know, campus law enforcement is a much more nuanced process or nuanced type of campus safety than maybe in a general broader community. So I'm just curious how that plays out. What do those nuances sound like or feel like or how do they end up kind of manifesting themselves as you're doing your work? Well, I think that, you know, and I'm, I'm talking in really broad generalizations here. And so, you know, obviously from camps to campus or from community to community, it may be very, very different. But my sense of it is, is that because of our work kind of on a daily basis with student life professionals and the higher ed professionals, and particularly our, our colleagues in student life and in uh, student conduct, um, we're, we end up seeing and hearing a lot more about the different kind of levels of of nuance. I mean, a new, I think that's the kind of the best word, but I mean, you, you, you get to learn more about the ins and outs of the communities that you're dealing with and you get to see the trends and you get to see, um, you know, what are the things that are most important? You know, we don't see, we don't deal as much with, you know, elderly communities or infants, right? Unless you have student housing and, and those kinds of things, but we deal a lot every year with that's the same basic age group. And so you, you get to really see the trends and really get to, to learn how that affects the issues that come to the fore. So I, I really, really, really appreciate the interactions I have with my, my student life colleagues because that's how I'm able to, to do my job better is to, to learn from them the things that we need to be looking at and thinking about and, and addressing. I think that's kind of a mutual respect and mutual need that we work well with our campus law enforcement partners, and you all are working well with your student life counterparts. Uh, so what have you seen yeah. in terms of, or learned really, um, in terms of your best successes in partnering with student life departments? Well, I think um, over the years, both at Berkeley and here, it's just the issue of pre-planning and working with people before something becomes an issue. And this goes particularly not just with student life partners, but also with student groups. Um, talking to folks about, hey, we know that this is an issue. What, what is it you want to do about it? We heard you're thinking about having an event. How can we help you be successful with this event? Um, and then also working with the student conduct and student life partners to have those conversations with folks so that they know what the expectations are up front, they know what the rules are up front, and they can make a conscious decision about whether they choose to follow those rules or not. I mean, my thing is, hey, I'm, I'm more than happy to have you have your day in court as long as we agree that no one needs to get hurt in the process. 
I think that's really what we're all after, too, is that, you know, when students choose to do something that initiates contact with either conduct or with law enforcement, that we want our students to learn something from it. We want them to be safe. We want no one else to kind of maybe feel the impact of decision making, if that's possible. Um, So when you're thinking about your interactions with students, is there a particular time that you remember an interaction going really well? Um, Yeah, we uh, there's been a couple. I mean, we had more than one sit-in in my in my experience at Berkeley, for example, and just going to students ahead of time and saying, hey, just so you're aware, this is kind of what we're looking at. This is the things that are going to happen. If you decide to do X, then we're going to have to do X, you know, Y, and Z. And, you know, we're certainly happy to, to help with, with having you reach your goal as long as as we can agree on how we're going to get there so that nobody gets hurt. Um, I mean, we even had situations where, people would make an appointment. We, we're going to have 25 people who are going to want to get arrested on Thursday. Okay, great. Make sure have, everyone has their IDs and, and we'll see you then kind of a thing. I mean, it, we had situations that were that well planned out where they knew they wanted to get arrested um, and they, they wanted it to be something that, that was not super confrontational. Um, and so those, those are the kinds of experiences that I really appreciate because, you know, again, you talk about what are the consequences, what are the things that could happen, and have people go, okay, I'm going to make a conscious choice about what I want that result to be. And, you know, that's kind of the best you can hope for. Well, and Berkeley is such a unique environment, right? I mean, Berkeley is famous for student activism, um, a kind of public and civil disobedience. I remember when I was at um, Berkeley for our Gang Academy a couple years ago, the Golden State Warriors had just won the NBA title, the NBA championship. And I just was walking down the street and saw maybe a crowd of 30 people climbing a city bus. And I was kind of watching this unfold and nobody who seemed to live there even turned or blinked an eye. Yeah. Well, you know, I think that, um, I think Berkeley has learned a lot from a lot of these these things that have happened, but I also think it's a good pl- way for other folks around the country to kind of say, oh, okay, here's what's happening, here's what, what the responses are. Because we see it, you know, it doesn't just happen in one one place in the country. We see it happen other, all over the place, whether it's um, Milwaukee or, or Miami or, or Boston, right? Right. You know, I always I get the sense that um, campus law enforcement agencies or officers feel potentially just as misunderstood as student conduct offices about what we're really trying to do. Um, So if you got to share and tell your story a little bit better to the student conduct officers that are listening, what do you want them to know about campus law enforcement? Well, I think that it really depends on whether your campus has a sworn agency or not. I think that sometimes uh, one thing to keep in mind if if you're dealing with police on your campus is not to take it personally if they can't share stuff with you or if they don't share stuff with you. Um, I know that in, in our case, uh, you know, we had, a, we had a, an issue going back and forth with the DA's office. The DA's office didn't want us to share certain elements of cases before they decided to charge it or not. Um, and especially if you're talking about sexual assault cases, that can wreak havoc with a Title IX investigation. Um, but, uh, you know, you can't take that personally. I mean, you can't say, oh, well, they don't like us. It may have nothing to do with that. It may, I mean, in my experience and the experience both at the sworn and non-sworn campuses, student conduct process is going to get you a lot more bang for your buck in terms of your work than the criminal process, especially in a large city where the DA's office doesn't have time to charge things. I know like for alcohol violations, I would much rather have that go through a student conduct process than to write them a ticket and go through the criminal process because it may never go anywhere. So, you know, I, I really enjoy 
engaging with the student conduct process. But I think sometimes there's a frustration about what we can and can't share. And a lot of times, it, you know, just, just like we, we have with parents who call and say, I want to know what Johnny did. Well, we can't tell you unless we have a waiver. <laughs> it's right. that same kind of right. feeling. Um, so, I mean, I think that to me that was one of the number one things was the frustration about being able to share information. Um, and when it comes to sexual assault cases, those conflicts can be, or, or, or those, you know, lack of communication pieces can be, uh, can be problematic uh, on both sides, right? And uh, there's DAs and investigators who get upset if you talk to parties before they talk to them and vice versa. So, you know, I think that's where it gets really messy sometimes. That's an incredible challenge because, you know, conduct offices are being told by the federal government, you know, for the last several years, we had a very strict timeline that we had to abide by. And we just know that our criminal justice system moves at a snail's pace compared to university processes. Um, so I absolutely right. understand why that why that's a challenge. Uh, so what do you suggest for conduct offices who are trying to navigate that? Well, I, I think that, again, it comes down to having the relationships ahead of time. Um, you know, it's worth it to go have that cup of coffee with somebody on a regular basis. It's worth it. I know that on our campus, you know, I try to meet weekly or at least bi- or biweekly with the lead conduct person and just kind of get together and say, hey, you know, are you having any questions about which cases should be clear cases or not? Are you having, you know, how how are you seeing the reports that are coming through, just kind of being able to touch base and making sure that the flow of information is what we expect it to be and that it's continuing to, you know, to, to do the work that we needed to do. But again, it's just having those relationships. So if something big ends up happening, you're not cold calling somebody. Right. That cold call is really hard to work through those emergent situations. I think we see the same type right. of thing with our uh, our campus colleagues who work in general counsel, where, you know, our, our first interaction shouldn't be, oh, hey, we think this potential student conduct case might end up in a lawsuit. Right. Yeah. Yeah. You never want to be having that first uh, conversation in crisis mode. No, definitely not. And you've got, um, you've had the opportunity to work with some um, just stellar conduct officers. Uh, For the audience, Adon has gotten to work with Megan Carbley, who was at uh, St. Mary's and who's now over in the East Coast again, uh, as I previously mentioned, Laura Bennett, and then also a slew of conduct officers who have come through Berkeley over the years. Um, So we want to thank them too for, you know, connecting you with us for the podcast for sure. Yeah, I'm kind of still mad at Megan. She she abandoned us to go to Wake Forest, but you know you got to go home, right? So it, it's all good. Definitely. Uh, well, Adon, I also wanted to back up and ask you a clarifying question because uh, I know not all of our listeners may be familiar. You mentioned the difference between sworn and unsworn officers. Uh, so for the layperson, uh-huh. can you elaborate on what that means? Sure. So some campuses, uh, mostly public campuses, will have actual police officers working. Uh, for the institution. Um, in California, all the California state colleges and, and, this, and the University of California campuses have actual police departments uh, at that campus. For private institutions, that generally may not be the case. And what we also see sometimes with community colleges and some other colleges, they'll have a contract with the sheriff's department or the local PD, local police department, to do their policing for them. So, if you have public safety, a non-sworn public safety department, that means the officers are basically security officers. They're they're campus officials, and they're not they're not police officers. They're not they're not uh, constrained by the same controls that may be on peace officers. So that's a kind of a double-edged sword for those of us who are in the non-sworn world. On the one hand, if we're administrative you know, 
uh, officers of the administrative staff of the college, then we can interact with students in, in that administrative fashion, things like doing room checks or welfare checks and those kinds of things. You don't have the same Fourth Amendment issues because you're not acting as an agent of the government. You're an administrative person working for the college. For a law enforcement officer, if you're a police officer, you know, you can't go, you can't go check for the contraband in the room as easily. You have to, you know, you need a search warrant. There's the Fourth Amendment issues to deal with, and, and it's a whole different set of, of guidelines and, and constraints. So uh, there's pluses and minuses to both. Uh, some non-sworn campuses have non-sworn officers who are armed. Some have non-sworn officers who are not armed. Some have them in uniform, some do not. So uh, there's a wide variation across the country. Uh, the issues we face tend to be consistent across the country, but the, but the resources that we have and the, and the organizations that we have to respond to them are very different sometimes. So you brought up a great point about, you know, being sworn versus unsworn and its relationship to the Fourth Amendment uh, and its relationship to other things like chains of custody uh, with evidence and things like that. I'm curious to hear your thoughts on uh, sworn versus unsworn officers or security individuals when it comes to handling, disposing, confiscating drugs and drug paraphernalia. So that is a very sticky situation um, because the mere fact of possessing it is against the law, right? So how do you work through that? So um, sometimes it's worked through via MOU with the local agency. The Cleary Act suggests, and many state laws require that uh, departments have, campuses have uh, memorandums of understanding with the local police agency. And sometimes those things can be clearly spelled out in those documents. It's the best way to, to do it is have it pre-designated how you're going to do that. Other campuses, if they find something that is beyond an infraction level in California, for example, certain amounts of marijuana up until uh, January are infraction level, not a misdemeanor or a felony. So we're, we have a little bit more leeway dealing with that. But you know, for us and for a lot of departments, if you're doing that administrative uh, check for contraband in a room and you come across something that's a, a felony drug, you basically stop what you're doing and you have the local PD come confiscate it. They may not be able to, the case may not be able to get charged, but, you know, it, unless you have something in writing that says you're authorized to handle felony drugs, then you can't. Right, because then you would just personally be possessing at that point, I would imagine. Well, and I, it, let me put a caveat here and say I'm not an attorney. I can't give you legal advice, and you should always check with your campus counsel first. But, yeah, just generally speaking, unless you have something in writing that authorizes you to to deal with those, those uh, substances, then you can't. So I think that's a, a great point because we've got a lot of questions in the conduct world right now around how are we treating states or campuses where, you know, within the state, marijuana has now become either completely legalized or decriminalized um, or has been reduced to, you know, the same level as just a regular infraction like jaywalking ticket or something. So what are the conversations happening in your world around this issue? Well, it's pretty much a non-issue relative to allowing it or not allowing it. If, you, if, you're, if you're getting the Title IV funds, then you're not, using, you're not allowing it. I mean, the, the federal standard is the federal standard. Um, and, you know, if you're one of the, what is it, four or five campuses in the country that doesn't take federal funds, then, you know, do what you do. But uh, for everybody else, you're not allowing marijuana on your campus. So, um, you know, in most cases where, where it's going to be, where it's legalized, whether it's whatever level that looks like for that state, it's probably just going to be an administrative slash student conduct violation uh, with no legal overtone. 
And even for the campuses that have police officers, you know, they're going to be writing student conduct cases. They're not going to be writing criminal cases. How has that changed your conversations with students? Um, well, I think that uh, it's, again, real important to be upfront. And I see with this happening like orientation process and even in, in hall meetings and those kinds of things to let folks know, yeah, if you're not on campus, you can do what you do. But if you're on campus, you have to follow the campus rules and regulations. And uh, whether that's a rule and regulation about stopping at stop signs or whether that's a rule and regulation saying you can't have alcohol in a public place or whether it's you can't have marijuana, the campus rules are the campus rules. So students need to know that they're subject to campus rules and, and that they there's going to be consequences for violations. It's the same conversation you have with, you know, having a candle in your, in your, in your dorm room, in your rest hall room. So sure. it's just a, it's the violation that, that needs to be addressed. Absolutely. You know, it's a conversation we're having on our, on our campuses all the time to say, you know, I know that you can have this 10 feet across the street, but unfortunately on our campuses, if you want us to be able to give you financial aid or for your faculty to receive federal research grants, it is the way it is for now. Um, so it has changed our conversations with students in terms of what does the education look like? Um, and I've seen the harm reduction conversation change a lot over the last 10 years from why is marijuana bad? for you to why can't you have it on our campus? Right. So, Adon, you mentioned earlier um, that campus carry is a hot topic amongst your colleagues. Uh, what's being said right now about campus carry? Well, there's, uh, you know, talking about guns in, the, in America is uh, no matter where you start the conversation, it, it's, it doesn't end well, very often. Uh, so there's a lot of there's a lot of conversation uh, inside the profession and outside the profession about you know should it be allowed should it not be allowed how do we deal with it how do we not deal with it you know where on campus should it be allowed where on, does it matter does it not um, and so it's a very complicated and sometimes very emotionally charged uh, discussion and so it's it's trying to 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 find facts that aren't part of a you know, a larger political piece and trying to, you know, disassociate the politics and the emotions from the facts um, that we're trying to, to address. And so there's not consensus within the profession, and there's certainly not consensus outside the profession. So this is definitely going to be a state-by-state and campus-by-campus uh, decision and view on how they want to deal with it. So it, it's it's sticky. It's very sticky. And certainly, you know, in the conduct circles, we have individuals who are uh, very pro-campus carry. We have individuals who are very anti-campus carry. We have individuals who say they feel safer when they can carry. And we have individuals who feel safer when their campus is weapons-free. Um, so for the folks um, that are on either side of, of this argument, um, what advice do you have? Well, the the advice is to get to a point where you can you can uh, come up with a campus policy. I mean, and once there's a campus policy, that's the policy. And all of us have had the experience of having to either enforce or deal with policies that we may not agree with 100%. But, you know, as long as they're not uh, a violation of law and they're not, you know, ethically repugnant, then then you you do your, your work. And if it gets to the point where someone is saying, I, I really can't do this, then that's a personal decision about, you and your career. But I think that usually, usually reasonable minds can come to a reasonable compromise about how we're going to do these things. So establish campus policy, be clear on what it is, communicate it clear, clearly, and then follow it consistently. 
Are there any campuses out there that you might point individuals to to say this campus has a really great policy? Um, <clears throat> not without alienating half the audience, probably. Um, I, sure. I think. <laughs> I mean, again, there's there's campuses. You know, they're contesting this stuff in court, uh, so not people just don't agree. And so, I would look to the states like Texas and other states that have campus carry, and kind of look at different campuses. Uh, to see what their policies are and see what elements you like and don't like. Um, you know, look to campuses that are a similar type to yours and, and look to campuses, you know, if you are a faith-based institution or whether you're a public institution or whatever it happens to be, you know, I would look to models uh, of those types for, for policies. And this is where uh, associations like ASCA and IACLEA are key because we have the discretion groups and the, and the communities of expertise to say, hey, what are people doing about this? And we have this issue, and how can somebody help me with XYZ? And having, getting those resources from colleagues, that's why we have associations. So I strongly encourage people to take advantage of that. Has IACLEA come out with any t- type of statement or recommendations on the campus carry concern? Um, no, not specifically because it is so regional and it is so different depending on where you're at. Uh, what we do have is we do have a very active discussion groups where people can can bounce ideas and policies off of each other to see what's going to work for their area. This really does end up being very campus specific and community specific because the standards and the attitudes and the, uh, and the ways of looking at these things are going to vary from County to County, from campus to campus. So uh, there is no way to have a kind of a one size fits all international association stance. Definitely. If a conduct officer decided to register for and attend an IACLEA conference, what could they expect, or, and how might it be different and similar to the ASCA conference? Well, that's a great question. The IACLEA conference is um, has topics that are range from, you know, dealing with hate crimes to dealing with Cleary and and all kinds of other uh, kind of law enforcement only kind of discussions. I mean, there's, it can, it can range pretty, pretty greatly, but I always find that, uh, for folks who are there who are not in the business, so to speak, they still find things that are very, very, uh, compelling to attend and the conversations they can have with folks over the lunch table, is, it can be worth the, the price of admission right there. I know that when I go to the ASCA conferences, you know, there'll be times where there's a, you know, one period during the day where, well, gee, none of the None of these particular sessions are something that is going to be specific to what I do. But what I end up doing then is picking one that looks most interesting, even if it's not part of my job. And it never fails that I pick up something that I can use in my job. Um, So I guess I would say, when in doubt, check it out. (laughs) Where's your conference this year? Um, Our conference this last year was in, oh gosh, it was in Milwaukee. The next one's in Orlando. Much warmer. (laughs) Yeah, it's nice. Well, we try to move it around the country, you know, So, because what we find is wherever your conference is at, you're going to get a larger percentage of people from that area, right? Because travel costs money and, and, all, and all that stuff. So uh, we like to try and move it around and make it easier for different parts of our constituencies to be able to go to the conferences. Uh, I know that one of the, the hot topics in your area, as well as ours, is the continual 
um, iterative process of learning how to comply with Cleary. Uh, so, <laughs> and we did in a whole episode with Mike DeBose from uh, from NACOP as well. Uh-huh. Um, but I'm wondering what your take is on campus compliance with Cleary and kind of what law enforcement is talking about versus how you're kind of communicating that to your conduct officers and your Cleary officer. Well, I wish we had a Cleary officer. So I think that one of the things, one of the trends which is, I think, a good trend, is finally having campuses realize this is not the cop's job. So way back when, before most people, I mean, back in the 90s, early 90s, when those of us in the UC system were looking at Cleary, it was almost exclusively police departments doing it. You know, it was primarily crime stats and some other crime-related policies, and so it was all it was all about the cops. As it's changed over the decades, it really is a campus-wide requirement that requires campus-wide coordination. And so it's so nice to see campuses tending towards compliance officers and tending towards Cleary committees um, so that everybody can make sure that the campus is complying. Because when it, you know, at the end of the day, if the Department of Ed comes in and does the audit, they're not they're not going to levy the fines against the police department or the public safety department. The fines are being levied against the institution, right? And so the institution has to take that, that more holistic view on the compliance. And so I'm glad to see that trend and glad to see that campuses are, are recognizing that. And it's a big deal. I mean, the, with the, with the fines increasing uh, as much as they have, campuses really do need to pay attention. Pay attention and also, you know, do the research on, what constitutes one one report versus three. The conversation I had with Mike was, here's a case study. You know, if there's three people in a room and they all get charged with an alcohol violation each, is it one Clary statistic or three? And I think that's the question that, um, you know, we always are going back around to and calling for technical assistance and hoping we get consistent answers on. Um, but yeah, I think well, it's an interesting thing. Oh, go ahead. No, I was going to say this is this is where the conversations between those who do the reporting and those who do the the counting is critical. This is why conduct officers on campuses have to be in in regular conversation with whoever's the Clery compliance person, so that they have those regular conversations and are looking at things on a regular basis. If you wait till December or January to count up everything that happened over the year, you're doing it wrong. And I, I'm just going to say it that flat. I mean, if if you're on a larger campus where there's a lot of conduct happening and you're not meeting at least biweekly, then you really need to look at what you're doing because it's very important to look at a case and have someone say, yeah, I counted it like X, Y, Z. Oh, well, I have, I don't think that that's a crime. Well, I, we think that it is. And so you have to clear those things up because when the department of ed comes in, they're going to ask you why you made that decision. And so you have to know why you made that decision. And so that's where the training is super critical. Uh, that's where the consultation back and forth is really critical uh, and important. Uh, you know, you want to do things right. So having those, that, those ongoing conversations is what's going to get you there. So let's touch on training a minute, because I think that's a great transition. You know, a lot of us in the conduct world are asked to go provide training for our campus law enforcement partners. Mm-hmm. Uh, what is the best way that you've seen that conduct officers can really transmit our philosophy, as well as kind of the needs of the conduct office and how they might Venn diagram with campus law enforcement? Yeah, man, if I had the answer to that question, I'd be a super rich consultant. Um, <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> Um, I think that 
what I have found effective is to have someone come in and do training specifically for the officers to say, hey, these are the things that we're seeing coming through in the reports. Here's how we use that information. Here's what the process looks like. You know, depending on the state, they may have ongoing requirements for departmental training, and this is the kind of thing that can slot in very well. So that officers understand what the process is and how what they write informs that process. Because a lot of times you have officers who feel like they write something, it goes into the black hole, they don't know whatever happens with it. And so kind of giving them kind of what is the, what is the life of this report? What does is, what is the, the life of a report look like and, and how does that work? Um, and talk about sanctions and talk about, you know, why, you know, what's the difference between, you know, reasonable doubt and, and uh, preponderance of the evidence and, and how, how does that, what does that process look like? Because for the line officer, especially in larger departments, they don't have, they don't see that stuff, right? The, the person who does the coordination with conduct might, and the person who uh, does the clear reporting might, but the line officer does not. And so the more that people can understand why they're doing their job, the better they're going to be at it. And by line officer, you mean kind of that first point of contact, the person who's out patrolling? Yeah, the person who responds to those calls for service. What we've seen, what we've done is we'll have someone come in and do uh, a training for as many of the staff as we can get there, and then we'll videotape that. And then that tape is available. Everyone else who wasn't able to be there because they were sleeping for midnight shift, you know, they can watch the video as well. And then we can use that as an evergreen training for people coming in. And then we just update it periodically to make sure we're, we're always kind of on the front end of the information. So I think um, that that piece of advice around the life cycle of a report, it's the same advice that we give for RA training too. You know, once you file this report, where does it go? Because uh, we get concerns that nothing happens to it um, or maybe something more happened to it than we thought. So I think that's some great advice there. Uh, right. Adon, as we come to uh, kind of the conclusion of our conversation here, what other additional tidbits or stray observations do you have for the audience about both IACLEA and campus law enforcement? Well, I think that um, for one thing, to understand that the number of unarmed and non-sworn agencies across the country is a lot that percentage is a lot higher than you might think. A huge percentage of, of IACLEA are institutions that don't have police officers. And so, you know, there's a lot of great information that the association has for working with the different styles of campus law enforcement and campus public safety. Um, and so I would definitely ha- direct people to IACLEA.org to kind of see some of that information. And if your campus isn't a member, if your public safety or police department is not a member, they, they really should be. And sometimes we see public safety departments saying, oh, well, that's a police thing. That's why we're not doing it. And it's not a police thing. It's, a, it's campus public safety of all types. So in turn, for IACLEA, that would be one of the main things I would, I would be uh, directing people to do. And that's I-A-C-L-E-A, correct? Yeah, I, I-A-C-L-E-A dot org. Adon, what are you reading right now? What am I reading? Well, I'm a I'm kind of a science fiction guy, and uh, I also like the Harry Bosch uh, detective series in in crime novels. But I'm I'm doing a lot of science fiction stuff right now. Uh, I kind of go in waves. The Expanse series is awesome. I just finished that one not too long ago, and um, I think I'm on the 17th book in the Harry Dresden series right now. <laughs> One day I'm going to compile a list of all of our um, guests' reading selections and get to them, but I think that's got to wait till the end of the PhD journey. But I'm excited to dig into all these. They all sound fun. Uh, Adana, if folks want to get a hold of you after the podcast today, how can they reach you? 
So if anybody wants to get a hold of me, they can do that at AT11 at St. Mary's, S T M A R Y S dash C A dot E D U. All right. And if you'd like to reach the podcast, you can always find us on Twitter at ASCA Podcast. That's ASCA P O D C A S T. Or you can email us at ASCA Podcast at gmail.com. Thanks so much, Adon, for sharing your viewpoint today. Thank you. Next week, on the ASCA Viewpoints podcast, we welcome Pam Malik. Pam is the Assistant Dean of Students at the University of Florida, and she's also ASCA's annual conference chair. She and her team have been ramping up the planning and putting together an amazing slate of activities and educational programs for our annual conference next week, and she'll be talking to you about what to expect, any new highlights, and how we're celebrating our 30th anniversary. I hope you come back and join us. This episode was produced and hosted by Jill Creighton, that's me, produced, edited, and mixed by Colleen Mater. Special thanks to New York University's Office of Student Conduct and Community Standards and to the University of Oregon's Dean of Students team for allowing us the time and space to create this project. If you're enjoying the podcast, we ask that you please like, rate, and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps others discover us and helps us become more visible in the general podcasting community. If you have suggestions for future guests or would like to be featured on the podcast yourself, please feel free to reach out to us on Twitter at ASCA Podcast or by email at ASCAPodcast at gmail.com.